Chapter 47 of The Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roche. Chapter 47 For true repentance never comes too late. As soon as born, she makes herself a shroud the weeping mantle of a fleecy cloud and swift as thought her airy journey takes her hand heaven's azure gate with trembling strikes the stars do with amazement on her look she tells her story in so sad a tone that angels start from bliss and give a groan lee narrative of lady dunreath Adoring the power who has given me means of making restitution for my injustice, I take up my pen to disclose to your view, O oh, lovely orphan of the injured Malvina, the frailties of a heart which has long been tortured with the retrospect of past and the pressure of present evil. Convinced, as I have already said, that if your mind, as well as form, resembles your mother's, you will, while you condemn the sinner, commiserate the penitent and touched by that penitence offer up a prayer to heaven and the prayers of innocence are ever availing for its forgiveness unto me many years are now elapsed since the commencement of my confinement years which diminished my hope of being able to make reparation for the injustice and cruelty i had done lady malvina fitzallen but left unabated my desire of doing so Ah, sweet Malvina, from thy soft voice I was doomed never to hear my pardon pronounced, but from thy child I may, perhaps, have it accorded. If so, from that blissful abode, where thou now enjoyest felicity, if the departed souls of the happy are allowed to view the transactions of this world, thine, I am convinced, will behold, with benignancy and compassion, the wretch who covers herself with shame, to atone for her injuries to thee. But I must restrain these effusions of my heart, lest I encroach too much upon the limited time allotted to make what I may call my confession and inform you of particulars necessary to be known. My cruelty and insolence to Lady Malvina you no doubt already know. In my conduct to her, I forgot the obligations her mother had conferred upon me, whose patronage and kind protection laid the foundation of my prosperity i rejoiced at her marriage with captain fitzallen as a step that would deprive her of her father's favour and place her in that state of poverty which would conceal charms i detested for being superior to my daughters the earl's resentment was violent at first but with equal surprise and concern i soon perceived it gradually subsiding the irrevocableness of the deed the knowledge that he wanted no acquisition of fortune above all, Fitzalan's noble descent, and the graces and virtues he possessed, worthy of the highest station, dwelt upon the earl's imagination, and pleaded strongly in extenuation of his daughter. Alarmed lest my schemes against her should be rendered abortive, like an evil spirit, I contrived to rekindle, by means of my agents, the earl's resentment. They represented the flagrant, the daring contempt, 
Lady Malvina had shown to paternal authority, and that too easy a forgiveness of it might influence her sister to similar conduct with a person perhaps less worthy and more needy if possible than Fitzalan. This last suggestion had the desired effect, and Lady Malvina, he declared in future, should be considered as an alien to his family. I now hoped my ambitious views relative to my daughter would be accomplished. I had long wished her united to the Marquis of Roslyn, but he had for years been Lady Malvina's admirer, and was so much attached to her that on her marriage he went abroad. My arts were then tried to prevail on the Earl to make a will in Lady Augusta's favour, but this was a point I could not accomplish, and I lived in continual apprehension, lest his dying intestate should give Lady Malvina the fortune I wanted to deprive her of. Anxious, however, to procure a splendid establishment for my daughter, I everywhere said there was no doubt but she would be sole heiress to the Earl. At the expiration of three years, the Marquis returned to his native country. His unfortunate passion was subdued. He heard and believed the reports I circulated, and stimulated by avarice, his leading propensity, offered his hand to my daughter and was accepted. The earl gave her a large portion in ready money, but notwithstanding all my endeavors, would not make a settlement of any of his estates upon her. I, however, still hoped, and the marquise, from what I said, believed that she would possess all his fortune. My daughter's nuptials added to my natural haughtiness. They also increased my love of pleasure by affording me more amply the means of gratifying it at the sumptuous entertainments at the Marquise's castle. Engaged continually in them, the Earl, whose infirmities confined him to the Abbey, was left to solitude and the care of his domestics. My neglect, you will say, was impolitic, whilst I had any point to carry with him. But providence has so wisely ordained it that vice should still defeat itself. Had I always acted in uniformity with the tenderness I once showed the Earl, I have little doubt but what at last I should have prevailed on him to act as I pleased, but infatuated by pleasure, my prudence, no, it deserves not such an appellation, forsook me. Though the Earl's body was a prey to the infirmities of age, his mind knew none of its imbecilities and he sensibly felt and secretly resented my neglect. The more he reflected on it, the more he contrasted it with the attention he was accustomed to receive from his banished Malvina, and the resentment I had hitherto kept alive in his mind against her gradually subsided, so that he was well prepared to give a favorable reception to the little innocent advocate she sent to plead her cause. My terror, my dismay, when I surprised the little Oscar at the knee of his grandfather, are not to be described. The tears which the agitated parents shed upon the infant's lovely cheek seemed to express affection for its mother and regret for his rigor to her. Yet, amidst those tears, I thought I perceived an exulting joy as he gazed upon the child, which seemed to say, Thou wilt yet be the pride, the prop, the ornament, of my ancient house. After circumstances proved I was right in my interpretation of his looks, I drove the little Oscar from the room with frantic rage. The Earl was extremely affected. He knew the violence of my temper, and felt too weak to enter into any altercation with me. 
he therefore reserved his little remaining strength and spirits to arrange his affairs and by passiveness seemed yielding to my sway but i soon found though silent he was resolute my preventing your brother from again gaining access to his grandfather and my repulsing your mother when she requested an interview with the earl i suppose you already know gracious heaven my heart sickens even at this remote period when i reflect on the night i turned her from her paternal home from that mansion under whose roof her benevolent mother had sheltered my tender years from the rude storms of adverse life oh black and base ingratitude dire return for the benefits i had received yet almost at the very instant i committed so cruel an action she was avenged no language can describe my horrors as conscience represented to me the barbarity of my conduct i trembled with involuntary fears sounds had power to terrify every blast which shook the abbey and dreadful was the tempest of that night made me shrink as if about to meet with an instantaneous punishment i trembled at my undivulged crimes unwhipped of justice i knew the earl expected either to see or hear from your mother he was ignorant of the reception she had met from me and i was determined if possible he should continue so as soon as certified of lady malvina's departure from the neighbourhood of the abbey i contrived a letter in captain fitzallan's name to the earl filled with the most cutting and insolent reproaches to him for his conduct to his daughter and imputing her precipitate departure from scotland to it these unjust reproaches i trusted would irritate the earl and work another revolution in his mind but i was disappointed he either believed the letter a forgery or else resolved the children should not suffer for the faults of the parent he accordingly sent for his agent an eminent lawyer in one of the neighbouring towns this man was lately deceased but his son bred to his profession obeyed the summons to the abbey i dreaded his coming but scarcely had i seen him ere this dread was lost in emotions till then unknown a soft a tender and ardent passion took possession of my heart on beholding a man in the very prime of life adorned with every natural and acquired grace that could please the eye and ear married at an early period possessed of all the advantages of art said and believing myself to be handsome i flattered myself i might on his heart make an impression equal to that he had done on mine if so i thought how easily could the earl's intentions in favour of his daughter be defeated for that love will readily make sacrifices i had often heard a will was made but my new ideas and schemes divested me of uneasiness about it melros continued at the abbey much longer than he need have done and when he left it his absence was of short continuance the earl's business was his pretext his long and frequent visits but the real motive of them he soon discovered to me encouraged no doubt by the partiality i betrayed i shall not dwell upon this part of my story but i completed my crime by violating my conjugal fidelity and we entered into an engagement to be united whenever i was at liberty which from the infirm state of the earl i now believed would shortly be the case in consequence of this melros agreed to put into my hands the earl's will 
which had been entrusted to his care, and he acknowledged, drawn up entirely in favor of Lady Malvina Fitzalan and her offspring. It was witnessed by friends of his, whom he had no doubt of bribing to silence. You may wonder that the will was not destroyed as soon as I had it in my possession, but to do so never was my intention. By keeping it in my hands, I trusted I should have a power over my daughter, which duty and affection had never yet given me. Violent and imperious in her disposition, I doubted not, but she and the Marquise, who nearly resembled her in these particulars, would endeavor to prevent, from pride and selfishness, my union with Melrose. But to know they were in my power would crush all opposition, I supposed, and obtain their most flattering notice for him, a notice, for my pride, I found essential to my tranquillity. The Earl requested Melrose to inquire about Lady Malvina, which he promised to do, but it is almost unnecessary to say, never fulfilled such a promise. In about a year after the commencement of my attachment for Melrose, the Earl expired, and the Marchioness inherited his possessions by means of a forged will executed by Melrose, ignorant indeed at the time that it was by iniquity she obtained them, though her conduct since that period has proved she would not have suffered any compunction from such a knowledge, I removed from the abbey to an estate about fifteen miles from it, which the earl had left me, and here, much sooner than decency would have warranted, avowed my intention of marrying Melrose to the Marquise and Marchioness of Roslyn. The consequences of this avowal were pretty much what I expected, the Marquise, more by looks than words, expressed his contempt, but the Marchioness openly declared her indignation. To think of uniting myself to a being so low in life and fortune, she said, as Melrose, was an insult to the memory of her father and a degradation to his illustrious house. It would also be a confirmation of the scandalous reports which had already been circulated to the prejudice of my character about him. Her words roused all the violence of my soul. I upbraided her with ingratitude to a parent who had stepped beyond the bounds of rigid propriety to give her an increase of fortune. My words alarmed her and the Marquise. They hastily demanded an explanation of them. I did not hesitate in giving one, protesting at the same time that I would no longer hurt my feelings on their account, as I found no complacence to my wishes but immediately avow Lady Malvina Fitzalan, the lawful heiress of the Earl of Dunraith. The Marquise and Marchioness changed color. I saw they trembled, lest I should put my threats into execution. Though with consummate art, they pretended to disbelieve that such a will as I mentioned existed. Beware, cried I, rising from my chair to quit the room, lest I give you too convincing a proof of its reality except I meet with the attention and complacence I have a right to expect, I shall no longer act contrary to the dictates of my conscience by concealing it. Unlimited mistress of my own actions, what but affection for my daughter could make me consult her upon any of them? Her disapprobation proceeds alone from selfishness, since an alliance with Melrose from his profession, accomplishments, and birth would not disgrace a house even more illustrious than the one she is descended from or connected to. I retired to my chamber, secretly exulting at the idea of having conquered all opposition, for I plainly perceived by the Marquis and the Marchioness' manner, they were convinced it was in my power to deprive them 
of their newly acquired possessions, which, to secure, I doubled not their sacrificing their pride to my wishes. I exulted in the idea of having my nuptials with Melross celebrated with that splendor I always delighted in, and the prospect of having love and vanity gratified filled me with a kind of intoxicating happiness. In a few hours after I had retired to my room, the Martinez sent to request an interview with me, which I readily granted. She entered the apartment with a respectful air, very unusual to her, and immediately made an apology for her late conduct. She acknowledged I had reason to be offended, but a little reflection had convinced her of her error, and both she and the Marquise thanked me for consulting them about the change I was about making in my situation, and would pay every attention in their power to the man I had honored with my choice. That I did not think the Marchioness sincere in her professions, you may believe, but complaisance was all I required. I accompanied her to the Marquise, a general reconciliation ensued, and Melross was presented to them. In about two days after this, the Marchioness came into my dressing room one morning and told me she had a proposal to make, which she hoped would be agreeable to me to comply with. It was the Marquise's intention and hers to go immediately to the continent, and they had been thinking, if Melross and I would favor them with our company, that we had better defer our nuptials till we reached Paris, which was the first place they intended visiting. As their solemnization in Scotland, so soon after the Earl's decease, might displease his friends, by whom we were surrounded, and, on their return, which would be soon, they would introduce Melross to their connections as a man every way worthy of their notice. After a little hesitation, I agreed to this plan, for where it interfered not with my own inclinations, I wished to preserve an appearance of propriety to the world, and I could not avoid thinking my marrying so soon after the Earl's death would draw censure upon me, which I should avoid by the projected tour, as the certain time of my nuptials could not then be ascertained. Melross submitted cheerfully to our new arrangements, and it was settled farther to preserve appearances that he should go before us to Paris. I supplied him with everything requisite for making an elegant appearance, and he departed in high spirits at the prospect of his splendid establishment for life. I counted the moments with impatience for rejoining him, and as had been settled, we commenced our journey a month after his departure. It was now the middle of winter, and ere we stopped for the night, darkness, almost impenetrable, had veiled the earth. Fatigued and almost exhausted by the cold, I followed the Marquise through a long passage, lighted by a glittering lamp, to a parlor which was well lighted and had a comfortable fire. I started with amazement on entering it and finding myself in a place I thought familiar to me. My surprise, however, was but for an instant, yet I could not help expressing it to the Marquise. Your eyes, madam, cried he, with a cruel solemnity, have not deceived you, for you are now in Dunreath Abbey. Dunreath Abbey, I repeated. Gracious heaven, what can be the meaning of this? To hide your folly, your imprudence, your deceit from the world, he exclaimed, to prevent your executing the wild projects of a depraved and distempered mind, by entering into a union at once contemptible and preposterous, and to save those from whom alone you derive your consequence by your connection with them, farther mortification on your account. 
To describe fully the effect of this speech upon a heart like mine is impossible. The fury which pervaded my soul would, I believe, have hurried me into a deed of dire revenge, had I had the power of executing it. My quivering lips could not express my strong indignation. And do you then, in a country like this, I cried, dare to think you can deprive me of my liberty? Yes, replied he, with insulting coolness. When it is known, you are incapable of making a proper use of that liberty. You should thank me, he continued, for palliating your late conduct, by imputing it rather to an intellectual derangement than to total depravity. From what other source than the former could you have asserted that there was a will in Lady Malvina Fitzalan's favor? These words at once developed the cause of his unjustifiable conduct, and proved that there is no real faith between the guilty. From my disposition, the Marquise was convinced that I would assume a haughty sway over him, in consequence of the secret of the will. He also dreaded that passion or caprice might one day induce me to betray that secret and wrest from him his unlawful possessions. Thus, pride and avarice tempted and determined him by confining me to rid himself of these fears. Oh, would to heaven, cried I, replying to the last part of his speech, I had proved my assertion. Had I done justice to others, I should not have been entangled in the snare of treachery. Prove the assertion now, said he, by showing me the will, and you may, perhaps, he continued in a hesitating accent, find your doing so attended with pleasing consequences. Rage and scorn flashed from my eyes at these words. No, cried I, had you the power of torturing, you should not tear it from me. I will keep it to atone for my sins, and expose yours to view by restoring it to the right owner. I demanded my liberty, I threatened, supplicated, but all in vain. The Marquise told me I might as well compose myself, for my fate was decided. You know, cried he with a malicious look, you have no friends to inquire or interfere about you, and even if you had, when I told them what I believed to be the case, that your senses were disordered, they would never desire to have you released from this confinement. I called for my daughter. You will see her no more, he replied. The passions she has so long blushed to behold, she will no more witness. Rather say, I exclaimed, that she dare not behold her injured parent, but let not the wretch who has severed the ties of nature, hope to escape unpunished. No, my sufferings will draw a dreadful weight upon her head, and may, when least expected, torture her heart with anguish. Convinced that I was entirely in the Marquise's power, convinced that I had nothing to hope from him or my daughter, rage, horror, and agony, at their unjust and audacious treatment, kindled in my breast a sudden frenzy, which strong convulsions only terminated. When I recovered from them, I found myself on a bed in a room which, at the first glance, I knew to be the one the late Lady Dunreath had occupied, those whose honours I so unworthily succeeded. Mrs. Bruce, who had been housekeeper at the abbey before my marriage, sat beside me. I hesitated a few minutes whether I should address her as a suppliant or a superior, the latter, however, being most agreeable to my inclinations, I bid her with a haughty air, which I hoped would awe her into obedience, assist me in rising, 
and procure some conveyance from the abbey without delay. The marquis entered the chamber as I spoke. Compose yourself, madam, said he. Your destiny, I repeat, is irrevocable. This abbey is your future residence, and bless those who have afforded your follies such an asylum. It behooves both the marchioness and me, indeed, to seclude a woman who might cast imputations on our characters, which those unacquainted with them might believe. I started from the bed, in the loose dress in which they had placed me on it, and stamping around the room demanded my liberty. The marquise heard my demand with contemptuous silence and quitted the room. I attempted to rush after him, but he pushed me back with violence and closed the door. My feelings again brought on convulsions, which terminated in a delirium and fever. In this situation the marquise and marchioness abandoned me, hoping, no doubt, that my disorder would soon lay me in a prison even more secure than the one they had devoted me to. Many weeks elapsed ere I showed any symptom of recovery. On regaining my senses, I seemed as if awaking from a tedious sleep in which I had been tortured with frightful visions. The first object my eyes beheld, now blessed with the powers of clear perception, was Mrs. Bruce bending over my pillow, with a look of anxiety and grief, which implied a wish, yet a doubt, of my recovery. "'Tell me,' said I faintly, "'am I really in Dunreath Abbey? Am I really confined within its walls by order of my child?' Mrs. Bruce sighed. "'Do not disturb yourself with questions now,' said she. "'The reason heaven has so mercifully restored would be ill-employed in vain murmurs.' Vain murmurs, I repeated, and a deep, desponding sigh burst from my heart. I lay silent a long time after this. The gloom which encompassed me at length grew too dreary to be borne, and I desired Mrs. Bruce to draw back the curtains of the bed and windows. She obeyed, and the bright beams of the sun, darting into the room, displayed to my view an object I could not behold without shuddering. This was the portrait of Lady Dunreath, exactly opposite the bed. My mind was softened by illness, and I felt in that moment as if her sainted spirit stood before me to awaken my conscience to remorse and my heart to repentance. The benevolence which had irradiated the countenance of the original with a celestial expression was powerfully expressed upon the canvas and recalled, oh, how affectingly to my memory, the period in which this most amiable of women gave me a refuge in her house, in her arms, from the storms of life. And yet her child, I groaned, her child, I was accessory in destroying. Oh, how excruciating were my feelings at this period of awakened conscience! I no longer inveighed against my sufferings. I considered them in the light of retribution, and felt an awful resignation take possession of my soul. Yes, groaned I to myself, it is fit that in the very spot in which I triumphed in deceit and cruelty, I should meet the punishment due to my misdeeds. The change in my disposition produced a similar one in my temper, so that Mrs. Bruce found the task of attending me easier than she had imagined it would be. Yet I did not submit to confinement without many efforts to liberate myself through her means but her fidelity to her unnatural employers was not to be shaken. Blushing, however, at my past enormities, I should rather have shrunk from that solicited admission again into the world 
had not my ardent desire of making reparation to the descendants of Lady Dunreath influenced me to desire my freedom. Oh, never did that desire cease. Never did a morning dawn, an evening close, without entreating heaven to allow me means of restoring to the injured their inheritance. Mrs. Bruce, though steady, was not cruel, and nursed me with the tenderest attention till my health was re-established. She then ceased to see me, except at night, but took care I should always be amply stocked with necessaries. She supplied me with religious and moral books, also materials for writing if I chose to amuse myself with making comments on them. To those books am I indebted for being able to endure with some degree of calmness my long and dreadful captivity. They enlarged my heart, they enlightened its ideas concerning the Supreme Being, they impressed it with awful submission to His will, they convinced me more forcibly of my transgressions, yet without exciting despair, for while they show the horrors of vice, they prove the efficacy of repentance. Debarred from the common enjoyments of life, air, exercise, and society, in vain my heart assured me my punishment was inadequate to my crimes. Nature repined, and a total languor seized me. Mrs. Bruce at last told me I should be allowed the range of that part of the building in which I was confined, for I had hitherto been limited to one room, and consequently air from the windows, if I promised to make no attempt for recovering my freedom, an attempt, she assured me, which would prove abortive, as none but people attached to the Marquis lived in or about the Abbey, who would immediately betray me to him, and if he ever detected such a step, it was his determination to hurry me to France. Certain that he would be capable of such baseness, touched by the smallest indulgence, and eager to procure any recreation, I gave her the most solemn assurances of never attempting to make known my situation. She accordingly unlocked the several doors that had hitherto impeded my progress from one apartment to another, and removed the iron bolts which secured the shutters of the windows. Oh, with what mingled pain and pleasure did I contemplate the rich prospects stretched before them, now that I was debarred from enjoying it. At liberty I wondered how I could ever have contemplated it with a careless eye, and my spirits, which the air had revived, suddenly sunk into despondence. When I reflected, I enjoyed this common blessing but by stealth. Yet who, cried I with agony, can I blame but myself? The choicest gifts of heaven were mine, and I lost them by my own means. Wretch as I was, the first temptation that assailed warped me from integrity, and my error is marked by the deprivation of every good. With eager, with enthusiastic delight, I gazed on scenes which I had so often before regarded with a careless eye. It seemed as if I had only now perception to distinguish their beauties. The season's difference made a material change to me, as all the windows were shut up in winter, except those of the apartment I occupied, which only looked into a gloomy court. Ah, how welcome to me then was the return of spring, which again restored to me the indulgence of visiting the windows. How delightful to my eyes the green of the valley, and the glowing bloom of the mountain shrubs just bursting into verdure! Ah, how soothing to my ear the lulling sound of waterfalls, and the lively carol of the birds! 
how refreshing the sweetness of the air, the fragrance of the plants, which friendly zephyrs, as if pitying my confinement, wafted through the windows. The twilight hour was also hailed by me with delight. It was then I turned my eyes from earth to heaven, and regarding its blue and spangled vault, but as a thin covering between me and myriads of angels, felt a sweet sensation of mingled piety and pleasure, which for the time had power to steep my sorrows in forgetfulness. But in relating my feelings, I wander from the real purpose of my narrative, and forget that I am describing those feelings to a person who, from my injurious actions, can take but little interest in them. The will I shall deliver to you tonight. I advise you, if your brother cannot immediately be found, to put it into the hands of some man on whose abilities and integrity you can rely. But till you meet with such a person, beware of discovering you have it in your possession, lest the Marquis, who, I am sorry to say, I believe capable of almost any baseness, should remove from your knowledge the penitent, whose testimony to the validity of the deed will be so cheerfully given, and is so materially essential. Be secret, then, I again conjure you, till everything is properly arranged for the avowal of your rights. And oh, may the restoration of all those rights you shall claim be to you and to your brother productive of every felicity. From your hands may the wealth it puts into them bestow relief and comfort on the children of adversity, thus yielding to your hearts a pure and permanent satisfaction, which the mere possession of riches or the expenditure on idle vanities never can bestow. As much as possible I wish to have my daughter saved from public disgrace. From me you will say she merits not this lenient wish, but alas, I hold myself accountable for her misconduct. Entrusted to my care by providence, I neglected the sacred charge, nor ever curbed a passion or laid the foundation of a virtue. Ah, may her wretched parents' prayers be yet availing, may penitence, ere too late, visit her heart, and teach her to regret and expiate her errors. Had she been united to a better man, I think she never would have swerved so widely from nature and from duty. But the selfish soul of the Marquise taught her to regard self as the first consideration in life. Mrs. Bruce informed me that the Marquise had written to Melrose, informing him that I had changed my mind and would think no more about him, and she supposed he had procured some pleasant establishment in France, as no one had ever heard of his returning from it. She made several attempts to prevail on me to give up the will to her, but I resisted all her arts and was rejoiced to think I had concealed it in a place which would never be suspected. My narrative now concluded. I wait with even trembling impatience for your expected visit, for that moment in which I shall make some reparation for my injuries to your mother. I am also anxious for the moment in which I shall receive the promised narrative of your life. From your tears, your words, your manner, I may expect a tale of sorrow. Ah! Uh, May it be only that gentle sorrow which yields to the influence of time and the sweets of friendship and conscious innocence. I cannot forbear describing what I felt on first hearing your voice, a voice so like in its harmonious tones to one I knew had long been silent. Impressed with an awful dread, I stood upon the stairs, which I was descending to visit the chapel, as was my constant custom at the close of day. Shivering and appalled, 
I had not for a few minutes power to move, but when I at last ventured nearer to the door and saw you kneeling before the dust-covered shade of her I had injured, when I heard you call yourself her wretched orphan, ah, what were my emotions? An awful voice seemed sounding in my ear. Behold, the hour of retribution is arrived. Behold a being whom the hand of providence has conducted hither to receive reparation for the injustice you did her parents. Adore that mighty hand which thus affords you means of making atonement for your offenses. I did adore it. I raised my streaming eyes, my trembling hands to heaven, and blessed the gracious power which had granted my prayer. The way by which I saw you quit my retirement, proved to me your entrance into it, was unknown. With an impatience bordering on agony, I waited for the next evening. It came without bringing you, and no language can express my disappointment. Dejected, I returned to my chamber, which you entered soon after, and where you received so great a fright, yet, be assured, not a greater one than I experienced, for the gleam of moonlight which displayed me to you gave you full to my view, and I beheld the very form and face of Lady Malvina. In form and face may you alone resemble her. Different, far different, be your destiny from hers. Soon may your brother be restored to your arms. Should he then shudder at my name? Oh, teach him, with a mercy like your own, to accord me forgiveness. Ye sweet and precious descendants of this illustrious house, ye rightful heirs of Dunreath Abbey, may your future joys amply recompense your past sorrows. May those sorrows be forgotten, or only remembered to temper prosperity, and teach it pity for the woes of others. May your virtues add to the renown of your ancestors, and entail eternal peace upon your souls. May their line by you be continued, and continued as a blessing to all around. May your names be consecrated to prosperity by the voice of gratitude, and excite in others an emulation to pursue your courses. Alas, my unhappy child, why do I not express such a wish for you? I have expressed it, I have prayed for its accomplishment, I have wept in bitterness at the idea of its being unavailing, lost to the noble propensities of nature, it is not from virtue, but from pomp and vanity you seek to derive pleasure. Oh, lovely orphans of Malvina, did you but know, or could you but conceive, the bitter anguish I endure on my daughter's account? You would think yourselves amply avenged for all your injuries. Oh God, ere my trembling soul leaves its frail tenement of clay, let it be cheered by the knowledge of my child's repentance. Oh, you young and tender pair! who are about entering into the dangerous possession of riches, learn from me that their misapplication, the perversion of our talents, and the neglect of our duties will, even in this world, meet their punishment. Resolute in doing justice to the utmost of my power, I am ready, whenever I am called upon, to bear evidence to the validity of the will I shall deliver into your possession. Soon may all it entitles you to be restored, is the sincere prayer of her who subscribes herself, the truly penitent, Annabella Dunreath. End of chapter 47 Recording by Maricel Quee